The Human League have this song. It's one from one of their early obscure albums called The Black Hit from Space. As in, where did that come from? And we sometimes refer to Don't You Forget About Me as The Black Hit from Space. But when it comes royalty time, mm. we take a different view. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. John J. Thompson of TrueTunes.com is back at the wood pile to help us highlight songs and artists from the 1980s who either have been forgotten and or didn't get the recognition we think they deserved. On this episode, we're going to talk Simple Minds and the choir, but first, Flock 14. Callister was basically the juice in that band. We actually, in Chicago, we had them play at our church. I can't remember if they played at True Tunes because I think this was before True Tunes was a thing. Back then, most of the Christian bands were metal bands or arena rock bands, that kind of thing. And I loved alternative music. I loved, you know, the Psychedelic Furs and U2. And so when Flock 14 came out with the echoey guitars and the angular rhythms and the spiky alarm kind of hair, I was like, oh yes, oh yes. (laughs) From what I recall, Tim had the band and also Tim was from the Northwest. I think Portland or Seattle. I'm pretty sure it was Portland. But the band was from Ohio for some reason. Tim was brilliant. He came and played at the warehouse at least a couple of times uh, over that era. And he had these young guys in the band with him. I remember one guy we called the fine young buck. I think he played bass. I just can't remember what his real name was. And then there was a guy named Gary Egger played keyboards in Flock 14, and Gary Egger had a band called Human Condition. So that was a very synth-driven kind of Depeche Mode thing that did a project later. And some people thought that that was actually Flock 14 continuing, but Tim never had anything to do with Gary's band. Um, but that, but we sold a lot of that at True Tunes, but that was Gary Egger. Flock 14 was just on an island. I mean, they were there was no scene for that kind of music, and it was they did have one song called "Your Eyes" that got played on what existed of rock radio for Christians. They played at Cornerstone. In fact, I'm pretty sure that it was at Cornerstone that they got kind of known, or they cut through the noise of the little scene. And from what I recall, they they got offers from several labels. They ended up signing with Graceland Records is what I remember. And it was Caesar Kalinowski who was also based out of the Chicago area. He had this little label. It was Graceland and it was Intense. They were kind of two names, but it was really functioning like two faces of the same company. And Intense was for metal and Graceland was going to be for alternative and rock stuff. And so Flock 14 was on Graceland and Sacred Warrior 
was on Intense. And they were, Sacred Warrior were from Chicago and they were really good friends of ours. And so that's probably why Flock 14 ended up in Chicago so much was because Graceland Records and Caesar were based out of Chicago. Cornerstone was in Chicago. So that's probably why Flock 14 spent so much time in Chicago. They played at our church, but we definitely were all friends and they might have stayed in my apartment or my parents' house or whatever. Like we were very familiar with their stuff for, for a number of years. Randy Kirkman, who played with Mission of Mercy, and then they changed into Yonder Boy. I know he was really tight with them and might have even collaborated and done some music with them. But yeah, we were all really good friends. And I just loved I was so excited when I saw that the Flock 14 record showed up on Spotify recently, and I listened to it over and over again, and, and I was driving in the car, and um, there's a song called Panic that, I, that was one uh, of my yeah. favorites. It, panic, panic in the air, there's panic. Panic, panic in the air, there's panic. And it's so 80s, it's so fun, and um, I loved that song. I had a radio show on Wheaton College's radio station. I did not go to Wheaton College, but they let me have a radio show there. And I used to play that song all the time, and I just it gives me so much joy hearing uh, those songs. And that one in particular was just so raw and so fun. I think the track that stood out to me was the, the 10,000 Years. Oh, yeah. Tim was writing really interesting lyrics that were very inspired by poetry. You could tell that, he, and, and I remember, I don't remember if I was old enough to recognize the poetry that he was inspired by at the time. I would have been 17 or 18 years old at the time. But I spent enough time with him, you know, hanging out at diners and stuff and in awe of him because he was so cool mm -hmm. that he was telling me about William Blake and he was telling me about, you know, um, Tennyson and different poets and stuff. He brought a level of literacy to that music that then when I listened to it, I could pick out the, the references. And what was cool was he was using poetic images and literary images to tell spiritual and theological stories, but then he was doing it in a way that was very 80s. Like it all sounded like it could have been in a John Hughes movie. Mm -hmm. It was all um, Echo and the Bunnymen, you know, kind of stuff. So. Um, and that was my love language at that point in time. Was It was also fun for me because the church and the crew that I was hanging out with in Chicago were mostly metalheads. They mostly loved metal. And I I could hang with that. Like, I, I could appreciate it. But it wore me out after a while. Like, I was not a true, in-my-gut, all-day-long metalhead. Like, I could go there, but... For me, music like Simple Minds and uh, Talking Heads and The Choir and that kind of stuff was Echo and the Bunnymen. That was what I could listen to all day. And you too. You know, they were the high priests of, of that. And so when Flock 14 came out, it was still low budget. Like when you listen to the record, you could still tell a difference between the, the, what they had to record with compared to you two or compared to Echo and the Bunnymen. You wished it had sounded a little bit bigger you wished there was more space on the tracks or a little bit more low end or a little bit you know whatever but but it, it was okay it was definitely forgivable because the the charm was there all you know all of that indie spirit was mm -hmm. was there and
he faced a lot of tragedy in the 90s um, and he had a just a beautiful graceful way of channeling his grief into the music that he did one story in particular that i know was that his sister died in a tragic accident from what i recall she was attacked by a shark and he wrote a song called gently down on the first i think it was on the first of his solo projects he could deal with sadness and grief within the context of still faith without sugarcoating it without cheapening it was very important to me that's something that in a similar way that the choir has always been able to do that I needed that and I referenced that a lot as an artist myself because I was dealing with a lot of darkness and I was having to having to navigate that myself and tim never ever offered platitudes same thing on flock 14 but even more deeply on his later stuff tim has continued to dabble in stuff and then he just kind of popped back on my radar this last year his son was in a terrible kitchen accident when he was at work i didn't i hadn't heard from tim in years but through a mutual friend found out that his son was in this terrible accident where like a, a car crashed through the wall of his restaurant and burned him and stuff and watching tim deal with this level of grief again online but still it's just such a blessing uh, the guy is just uh he's just a treasure you know and, and it it re it was it was interesting timing because it was kind of right after i had found that that flag 14 record had come back on spotify and i'd reconnected with that and gone man i love that guy and then this terrible thing happens and somehow through some connections online i I kind of reconnect and I watch this story and, you know, a little bit of a GoFundMe campaign to try and help, you know, with uh, medical expenses and stuff. But watching the way that he navigated that and is navigating it, it's, it's just interesting 25, 30 years later to see the same, the same essential heart, you know, the same person is still walking the planet and still that same spirit is alive. So Tim, after Flock 14, Tim did a really what was essentially a solo project. It was called World Theater. I think they only officially released one record, but I do think there was more stuff that came out or leaked out, or somehow I feel like there was more music that I heard from that. But Frontline Records, which was the the company that put out um, Caesar's stuff, they kind of bought that stuff, and it ended up coming out through their um, through, ended up through Wonderland or Graceland. All that stuff ended up coming out through Frontline. Um, you can still hear some of that stuff through Frontline, and I think they've covered some of this stuff on the Frontline podcast as well. But the World Theater record is is Tim's solo project, basically, and it's just fantastic. 
Next up, the choir. First time I heard the choir would have been at Cornerstone 84. They started off being called Youth the Choir. Youth Choir, okay. Which was uh, interesting. Even at 13 years old, going to the first Cornerstone, I was almost 14. I turned 14 like a couple days later, but I have to, on the record, someone will look up my birthday and say, wait a second, you weren't 14 yet. I saw Youth Choir. We live our lives from day to day. Sometimes we live like we're the only ones. Again, the memory gets foggy, but the first couple times I saw them, I'm pretty sure it was just Steve Hindelong and Derry Daughtery. There was no full band around them. And Steve played the drums standing up on one side of the stage. And Derry played guitar and sang on the other side of the stage. That's what I recall. I know that that was the configuration I saw when they opened for Steve Taylor at the Paramount Arts Center in 1985. That time I saw them and they really clicked with me. The Cornerstone thing, I think partly because they were called Youth Choir and I still thought that that sounded like something I was not going to like. It sounds like a real choir, like a bunch of teenagers. Right, or it just sounded kind of like kids' music or something like that to me. But so did the Altar Boys, for crying out loud. Like The irony of it was lost on 13-year-old me who grew up in the Episcopal Church, and so those terms were highly literal. <laughs> I knew what a youth choir was, and I knew what an altar boy was. I think a lot of evangelical kids might not have understood that stuff. But also the sound, this is just a functional thing. The indoor stage at the corner, the, the place where the Cornerstone Festival happened in the first several years, the afternoon and midnight stages um, were held in this hangar where it was a concrete slab floor and metal corrugate, walls and ceiling not designed for concerts it was like a you know a county fairgrounds sort of thing the sound was echoey and loud and their music was echoey to begin with so my 13 year old ears what i just remember was just kind of indecipherable noise but i liked their hair like i remember thinking their hair looked cool and i thought they were cool enough that i got a button from their merch table but then the following year when I saw them open for, actually I heard them on the radio, there was an alternative show on the radio, and then I started to like them. And so when they opened for Steve Taylor on uh, the next the next year, I really connected with them. They had a, an EP called Voices and Shadows that just, I obsessed over it. I still have my copy of that at home that I had them sign that night. Trying hard to live my life the best I can Knowing I can't start same thing it was just Steve and Derry um, Steve standing up and playing the drums I'd never seen that before uh, with his spiky big alarm hair Derry with his bright red flowing long hair which I tried my best to emulate years later um, to embarrassing results um, <laughs> but again in that Christian music scene the choir stood out on a number of levels musically they were completely their own thing. They weren't the Christian version of anything. There was no secular version of the choir. You would have to list six or 10 artists in order to capture all of the different elements of what the choir was doing, mm -hmm. which was what any good band, if you're trying to have a seat at the table, you should be unique, but then still be in the ballpark of what people were listening to. So 
when I talked about the choir with my friends at school, you're talking about a little bit of Echo and the Bunnymen, but really not a lot of that. A little bit of U2, but really not a lot of U2. Some Cocteau Twins, you know, some of that kind of ambience, but not at all a Cocteau Twins tribute band or anything like that. You had to put a lot of that stuff in, in the soup and then get into Steve Hindelong's lyrics, which were really interesting, poetic lyrics, and then Derry Daughtery's sweet, angelic voice, and then all of that swirling, psychedelic, keyboardy sounds that you find out are played by a guy who's playing keyboards with his mouth, and you go, okay, you know, in any other universe, this band would have just been out there with everybody else making interesting music. You could have seen the choir in any time between 1985 and 1995. The choir should have had a slot on any alternative tour, and they would have held their own against all of the other bands that were out there in the mainstream. No reason for them to have been limited to just the Christian market. Everybody that I ever introduced to their music who were interested in the finer side of adult alternative music, every single person ended up really digging their stuff. But they just were short bust from the beginning. guy with the keyboard in his mouth. <laughs> well, he didn't actually have a keyboard in his mouth. <laughs> his yeah. mouth on a keyboard. Lyricon, yeah. That's Dan Michaels. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, talk about him a little bit. Well, Dan, you know, who also plays saxophone remarkably well and had played horns with Adam again and other bands out in California. With the choir, he played Lyricon, which there's very few people who really nail that instrument. I don't know anybody that's played it as long as he has. He's been playing the Lyricon, which is a breath-controlled synthesizer. So you're playing samples and sounds, but you're controlling the sounds with your breath and and then using your fingers on the device that looks kind of like a clarinet or something like that. Um, so you're actually playing notes and controlling the notes with your fingers, but your breath, you know, the the speed, he was just explaining this to me the other night, like, you know, I was wondering if there was actually an aperture that you're, you know, doing like a read, and he was saying, no, it's, there's not a, there's not that, but there is, um, the, the intensity that you blow at is how you create volume and, and all of the, the dynamics. So, um, not only does he create this backdrop that that then Derry does his ambient guitar over. But um, visually, when you watch the choir play, Dan is always just kind of all over the stage, just almost like this psychedelic conductor, and this Lyricon is his baton. So just really neat thing to yeah. see. And Steve Hindelong, as a drummer, is back there, and it's almost like every hit of the snare, there's a wire connected to his spleen, and it's just like hurting or tickling or causing some strange thought to hit his head. Like you see in his face the strangest expressions as he plays. He feels the 16th notes and the 32nd notes and the strange little 
parts between and and he's so expressive as a drummer. Yeah, some guy was telling me, because I asked about that, I said, is he, is he okay? <laughs> and he said, well, I, his theory was that he is really an emotional guy. Like, so since he wrote these lyrics to the songs, like he's reliving whatever inspired them. But I, I don't uh, know. I suppose that's probably part of it, but it's also, he's, he's a world-class percussionist. In addition to his abilities as a kit drummer, Steve Hindelong is... I've never seen a percussionist like him. And in fact, in this town, he gets hired all the time to go play percussion on people's records. And when he brings in percussion, it's stuff that nobody's ever seen before. He's got this coffee can thing with these strange, um, I don't even know, but when you pick it up, this thing sinks out of it and it creates this weird haunting kind of sound. He's got stuff that anybody else would look at and assume it's trash. And he knows exactly the sound that it makes. He's collected it from all over the world. Mm-hmm. And what's fun is to watch him look. He's like a like a hawk that's hunting for a shrew mm-hmm. in a live set. And he'll just be like, you know, this crazy-eyed thing. And then he knows the thing he's looking for, and he finds it, and he holds it up. And at right the exact moment, this sound starts coming from the corner of the stage. So it could be, I'm sure that the lyrics that he wrote are are affecting his emotions, mm-hmm. but... He's feeling the rhythms of what's going on in a way that I've never seen anybody feel it before. So the the live show that the choir does, and I just saw them a couple weeks ago do a Christmas show, and it's it's no different now than it was 30, mm-hmm. 35 years ago. Uh, well, I won't say it's no different, but it's still there. But they, unlike a lot of bands, there's, there's plenty of bands that you can see live and be impressed by and then listen to the recordings and go, eh. The choir captured it in recorded form in a way that very few bands and Steve and Derry became producers of other people's music to great great success and songwriters that their songs traveled um, both worship songs, you know, that became huge global songs, songs like Beautiful Scandalous Night. Steve co wrote God of Wonders, which is one of the biggest worship songs of the last, you know, 15 years. So their instincts that they honed as the choir have traveled beyond but man the choir in the 80s the cornerstone late night shows the the shows at true tunes the shows i saw them at a bar in chicago one night i remember they played at the avalon which was kind of a goth club and it was vampire night which is the weirdest thing in the mid 90s the choir really took a shot at mainstream music they had a record called kissers and killers In fact, they just recently revisited that record and did an all-acoustic version of that album where they they re-recorded all the songs and they did a vinyl reissue of Kissers and Killers. But that was their attempt, kind of their last thing they did before they moved to Nashville to say, let's give it one more shot. Let's. They were out of their record deal with Murr, the Christian label they were on. They had these songs that were not, there's no reason that those songs needed to live in the Christian market. So mm-hmm. they said, let's just really try. So they started playing some clubs in LA. They made these 
I think it was eight or nine songs, sent them to all the major labels and tried their best. And nothing happened, you know, in the mainstream. And it was probably around that time when we went and saw them. They played at this club in Chicago. I remember, you know, most of the crowd at the club were still, you know, Cornerstone fans and True Tunes fans and stuff. We just all went and supported them playing a club in Chicago instead of playing out in, at True Tunes. But there was this vampire night, so there was all these people down. The Avalon had multiple venues in one place, so you know the choir would be playing in this room, and then down the hall there was another room where all the vampires were. And I remember like a whole gaggle of these vampires kind of being compelled by this music coming in from down the hallway. And so this, and you once you were in, once you paid your ticket, you could kind of go into any room that you wanted to. So I remember you know fifteen or twenty of these vampires hanging out in the back of the, the choir show. And I was talking to a couple of them, and they were like, you know, what the is this? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, this is a band called The Choir. They're on their Kissers and Killers tour. And, of course, being vampires, they loved that. <laughs> Kissers and Killers, like, what, what could be better? And the marketing person in me just yeah. in the moment was like, of course, you know. There's their merch. Because that's this an untapped uh, demographic. The, the vampire, vampire market, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That night, they nailed it. They, the choir won over the vampire market of Chicago big time. They, those people loved it. And I think that night I was talking to, to Dan Michaels after the show, and I told him, I said, the, the Chicago vampires love you guys. Like, you're a huge hit, and he laughed. The thing that I think about the choir, that era, they produced that record, and then they did this astonishing record called Free Flying Soul after that. I could tell you There is no Lester in the alley To take a to your knee And there's these records in the 90s that are very alternative, very edgy. And you, you could kind of sense, in my opinion, you could sense some increased tension from them. I attributed it, and I could be wrong, but I attributed it to frustration on their part, that they felt a little bit trapped in this world that a lot of artists, I think, in the alternative side of Christian music, never intended ever to end up only singing in this little ghetto. Mm -hmm. The idea was, hey, yes, we want to find other people that have this particular spiritual perspective because we like to have folks support us in what we do, but we all wanted to sing for everybody. Right. But we didn't realize that when we did this, we were going to end up subjugating ourselves and cloistering ourselves off. That time frame felt like a frustrating time for them, which frustration can create some really compelling art. The hope is you survive it you know, like that it doesn't destroy you. So then when you move into the 2000s, the band just basically seems to have accepted who they were and where they were and who their audience was, accepted basically after, after a season of doing some records for some different indie labels, they just basically went totally independent, started their own label. And then they started making, the last 12 years, they've made their best, every album, it's like, another fantastic record after a fant I mean, they just put out a record called Bloodshot last year that's just fantastic. The one before that, Shadow Weaver, is unbelievable. 
records are really great records. They're not, you know, hey, let's get the band back together and throw out another record. They're stunning works. And in the in between them, they're finding some of those older records and they're reissuing them on vinyl. They're remastering them. They're making sure that their catalog is up to date, uh, you know, sounding great. So they did the Kissers and Killers record. They did Wide-Eyed Wonder on vinyl. They did a special edition of that. They did Chase the Kangaroo, which is a record from... 1987 that's phenomenal so yeah the, the choir is one of those bands that we don't deserve they deserved to have hit a much bigger audience why they didn't i have no idea but the fact that they're still at it and they're still functioning at such a high level is just uh, amazing to me and what's fun is that to think there can still be somebody out there who hasn't heard them and at whatever point they do, to imagine how many albums they have to now listen to, you know, and to dive in and go, holy cow, like. I was at a park here in Nashville a couple years ago, and they did a show, just a free show, at Severe Park, and um, probably more than a couple of years ago, five, six years ago, and um, the whole band, you know, the, the full, and this is you know, obviously Tim Chandler, their bass player, just passed away this fall, which is devastating, but Tim was there, Dan was there, Steve and Derry were there, playing in a park in South Nashville, and a handful of choir fans there, and mostly people sitting on their, you know, blankets, just... Mm -hmm eating food that they got from a food truck and enjoying a beautiful night, having no idea who this band is. Mm -hmm. And it was really fun to watch people listening to this for the first time and kind of going, who the heck is this, you know? And just thinking, I wonder how many of them will pick up a CD or download something or whatever and, and then find out, hey, for 35 yeah. whatever years, these guys have been doing this and they're still after it, so. Hey, Jim. We remember you, yeah, we laugh and we think of you, Jean. Hey, Jean, we remember you, yeah, we cry when we think of you. Other thing is, both of the guys have done solo projects. Derry just did a solo thing that finally came out last year um, that's definitely worth uh, listening to as well, so you should look those things up. And then Derry just moved back to Nashville after living in California, taking care of his father who just passed away. He spent a couple of years out there. Derry's also a part of the Lost Dogs. And that's another, you know, amazing story. But to have Terry Taylor, Derry Daughtery, Mike Rowe, and for a long time, Jeannie Jean until he passed away. But these four guys that all are from tragically underappreciated bands all coming together to form the super group of underappreciated bands <laughs> is just karmically, cosmically fantastic. It's all breaking down crushed into the ground To dissect that band and the Lost Dogs and see uh, now, basically, when the Lost Dogs do stuff, Steve is a part of it. Steve has kind of unofficially, I think, filled in that spot that Gene left. Um, but he also brings the percussion and, mm -hmm. and that element to it. The choir, in my opinion, if it wasn't for the choir, the 77s, 
and Daniel Amos and Adam again, those four bands, I doubt I would have stayed nearly as interested in the, the whole concept of faith-based music as I did. Because there were other bands, certainly, that were great and other artists, but most of them were either retiring by the early 90s or they were solo artists like Mark Hurd and other people that were heading for the exits of Christian music anyway. But the fact that those four artists and then the Lost Dogs that wrapped them all up, that was essentially the the pillars of everything I built. <laughs> like they were the and everybody jokes about it. They're like, you know, um, they know it. I'm 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 an open book when it comes to the significance of those things. So you just can't say enough about the choir. But what's when it comes to that? But what's fun is when you look at how different the styles are between those groups. Like how close Mike Rowe is with Derry and Steve, but how different they are aesthetically. They counter each other really, really well, you know, sonically. They're not the same thing at all, no. you know, but they're, but they're cut from the same cloth. And T Terry Taylor is very different, but, you know, he's like the high priest of that, you know, strange little sect, you know, but very dis different, but of the same, again, cut from that same cloth. So this whole tribe makes no sense without those kind of they're like the priests of this this weird little coven but um uh i'm sure glad they're they're still around and they're underway with another project you know they've they've got bloodshot done but now they're gonna start working on another thing and they're gonna do another tour and you know so I just it's amazing inspiring <laughs> Finally, Simple Minds. Simple Minds, man. I'll admit, I, I don't think I was on the bandwagon before the big hit, you know, with uh, the John Hughes movie here, Don't You Forget About Me. I do remember hearing them, though. There were a couple of cool college rock type stations in Chicago, and there was a station that I grew up listening to called WXRT that's still on the air up there that back then, I don't know if they still do, they had a show called The Big Beat and they do like maybe Sunday night or Saturday night late, they would play imports and mm -hmm. rarities. So I remember hearing Simple Minds before Don't You Forget About Me, but not nothing like that. They were kind of post-punk, new wavy for sure. Yeah, before exactly. they had that real big sound. They were using kind of religious symbolism in their music the way you 2 did, kind of. Uh, and that would always get my attention because I'd always want to know, is this connected to something that's a belief or is this just poetry or whatever? But then when um, when Don't You Forget About Me came out, it's just such an irresistible song. Well, they didn't even write. Right, and it was yeah. not even originally written for them. It was supposed to be for Billy Idol. Yeah, I don't think that they even wanted to do it. But. Nope. There's a fun, I don't remember where it was, but I remember hearing a whole story about that, how it was pitched to Billy Idol, he turned it down, it was pitched to somebody else, they turned it down, and so it was just a demo lingering around, and then 
somebody from either the publisher or the label had a chance to get it in the movie, but they needed a band to cut it. And so they cut it and they didn't even care. The band went in and did it in one day. And I heard, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that the whole, you know, la, 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 all the laws were supposed to have eventually been more lyrics. Really? La, 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 la. There's supposed to be something there, but just for now, just put laws there. I don't know if that's yeah. true, but it's a fun story of it either way. But once that came out, it was another example of some of us would just, if anybody said, hey, did you hear that Simple Minds are a Christian band? It was like this subversive thing where, you know, ooh, somebody else broke through and it tricked everybody. And, yeah. and uh, <laughs> they're, they're like cloak and dagger right. Christianity. But that was enough. If I heard a rumor, mm. I'd jump down the rabbit hole and see what I could find out. And I went to a used record store somewhere in Chicago and I found somebody must have traded in their whole collection because I found everything like real to real cacophony, the first record. I found five or six of these imported vinyl albums and I just bought all of them probably for a buck a piece or something like that. So all of a sudden I had the whole thing. It was weird. It was like I was listening to several different bands because some of it was really oblique and complicated and almost prog rock kind of thing. And yeah. some of it was real synth pop kind of Duran Duran sort of sounding stuff. I found that on a lot of those records, there was a couple of songs I loved. Mm -hmm. So I made myself a mixtape of, of my own. The best of, yeah. You know, thing. But then that Once Upon a Time record, I just love every single song on it. I mean, Don't You Forget About Me is a great hook, but Sanctify Yourself? Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> So then I was full-blown, like, Simple Minds fan and loved that record and started to collect the singles and stuff. And I found out, I started to find articles from the UK that would talk a little bit more about the progression. So you could they understand. They were Scottish, correct? Scottish, yeah. 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 And to, the two main guys, Jim Kerr, the singer. Who had been married to Chrissy Hine from The Pretenders. That blew my mind, too. You wouldn't put those two together. Yeah. No. And... All the way back to the beginning, there was this kind of religious imagery about the struggle. And, and that's what, you know, I don't know if we called it the big music at the time or if that came later. But the idea that there was this UK and European music that was big sounding. It, was, it worked well in stadiums. And it was the idea that, that it, could, it could unite a whole bunch of people. But it was also the big ideas. It wasn't just girls and drugs and partying and escapism. It was like, let's make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly where Simple Minds landed for me. And there was enough stuff along the way that I always suspected that Jim Care was a Christian or at least had that background and kind of impetus behind what he was doing. And then, you know, we had U2 and we had The Call and we had The Alarm and, you know, we had other bands that were of that ilk. And in fact, Simple Minds ran in those crowds. Peter Gabriel took Simple Minds out with him on 
one of his tours in Europe, mm-hmm. which I guess was a, a key moment for them. They were right on the cusp. And then that kind of got them enough of an audience to keep them going long enough. And after Michael Bean died from the call, yeah. uh, Simple Minds covered Let the Day Begin. Yeah. I remember reading a couple of reviews that sort of unfavorably compared Simple Minds to, to U2. Sure. Like they're doing trying to do the same thing that U2's doing. But it was like... If you'd heard any of the records, it wasn't. It was a totally different... The Alarm got that criticism also of being another U2 clone, but I wouldn't disagree, of course. you know. Right, but I think that it's interesting because I see a common impetus behind those bands that express it in different ways. It's like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, were they rip-offs? You know, well, sure, they were both referencing American rock and roll and right. black music. And they were both reinterpreting it for white audiences, whatever. But what it says about the time is important. And I think that in the 80s, with all of the excess, with the Miami Vice, with the with the arena rock and the girl band, like the girly boy bands and all that kind of yeah. stuff, it was like, you know, there were a lot of people that still wanted something that felt like it meant something. And the, I think The Clash could have been that. And I think The Clash really broke the soil up in a way that U2 could happen and the Simple Minds could happen because The Clash were commercial enough to reach beyond just the punk people, but they were punk enough to have some edge to what they were doing. And the key difference to me between The Clash and like the Sex Pistols or whatever, even the Ramones, was that The Clash seemed committed to wanting to make the world a better place. And I think that all of us are faced with, once we come of age and we come up with the awareness that the world is not as the way it's supposed to be, we either acquiesce to it and become part of the problem, we completely escape it and just sit on our couch and play video games, or we engage it and try and make it a better place. Mm -hmm. And to me, those bands were demonstrating a engaging it kind of model it was like let's just go straight into the belly of the beast and fight our way from the inside out and as a kid that's what i wanted to do so i sit and learn how to play simple mind songs or u2 songs or whatever and when i listened to the simple minds lyrics it was just like dang i wish i wrote that Mm -hmm. and once upon a time every song is super strong the following records like street fighting years and And then even the the river, the, the you know she's a river and she's moving, which yeah. which I totally always wondered what the connection between that and mysterious ways was because they feel like oh, they're yeah. sister songs. A lot of bands, if they were a really interesting band, they never made it. If they did make it, it was because of one song that was not indicative of their body of work. Mm-hmm. Simple Minds are a little bit of a challenge to that rule because while Don't You Forget About Me was not indicative of the depth of the rest of their work, they did manage to have some more hits. You know, They did manage to, in the States, fill stadiums for a, a time. Right. And again, I feel like once the 90s came along with Nirvana and Guns N' Roses and the Dark days 
grunge and everything, all of those like just proud, positive, all those bands just either like you two changed, but Tears for Fears, they did a brilliant record and then disappeared. You know, it's like they just didn't fit in that landscape. Right. Simple Minds never disappeared. I mean, to their credit, they kept making records, but they just were never big. And they were mostly in Europe. You'd have to go hunt for them and find mm-hmm. them. And they're still active now. And it's it's not all the same guys. Obviously, like any other band, there was a lot of ebb and flow. The two main guys kind of hung in there. They've known each other since they were children, like mm-hmm. eight years old. But there's just an ethic to what they do where I could... A critic, you know, who knows, who cares about most of those critics? I think it's it's useless. But I think that I re- I resonate being the age I am, that I came up in an era when you could either just go with the flow and listen to what everybody else was listening to, or you could find these groups that were that were big. They were they were singing about the big important stuff. That's what I did, and I found a lot of friends because it's like if you saw someone who was a Simple Minds fan. You could make some assumptions about them. If you saw someone who was a U2 fan prior to Joshua Tree, you could make some assumptions about the kind of person they were, and you'd probably be right. And we used our T-shirts to advertise that, who we were, what tribe we belonged to. To find each other. Yeah. 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 It's like, dude, you like U2, or you you like Simple Minds, or you like... Now, Tears for Fears, in a way, they became so big because of their huge hits, and they were so pretty looking Mm -hmm. and girls liked them so much that I dismissed it as just being top 40 schlock. It took me a little while to go back and realize they were, they were singing out of the same hymnal. And, uh, I went and saw them at Bonnaroo a couple of years ago and man, they were fantastic. So I do hope, I don't know if we'll ever see another era when a band like simple minds can cut through the culture the way they did. I think that those days are gone. I don't know that we'll ever have arena rock again, but I think, that young artists coming up today should realize that there is there are certain universal things about modern human beings when it comes to music and that religious ideas and you know iconography for lack of a better term create a common dialogue or dialect and groups like simple minds could reference that to tap into the yearning that's universal to people. So again, there's escapist music and there's engagement music. And and I would love to hear what young artists today who are just now 18, 19, 20 years old, if they went back and could listen to and study and experience that bigness of Simple Minds, what kind of music could they come out with today? And I would love to, I would love to hear some of those songs get covered or just leading to new songs that would be like all the things she said or jungle land or sanctify yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I, f- I feel like the world needs those kind of, there's an important aspect to that. And people of faith should be leading the way in that. And sometimes they do. If you're still in an obscure eighties mood, you might give a listen to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 141, where radio promoter Chris Hauser also talks about the choir, in addition to Phil Keggy and Tony O'Kay. And be sure to check out Mr. Thompson's recently 
relaunched website, truetunes.com, where you'll be able to find articles and interviews with all kinds of great like-minded music and artists. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya.